0: Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College offers the foundation for individuals seeking to blend creativity and practice so that graduates have the freedom to direct their skills and move the world forward. Its faculty takes a multidisciplinary approach to academic, professional, and social growth so that graduates have relentless optimism to navigate the changing environment. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with fascinating people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Dr. Akil Houston, an associate professor of cultural and media studies at Ohio University. He is a cultural studies scholar who is multifaceted. He's a filmmaker, DJ, social critic, and hip-hop scholar. Dr. Houston specializes in Africana media studies, His scholarship and research are interdisciplinary. His research draws on the fields of Africology, cinema, cultural, and gender studies. The focus of his work relates to construction of gender, race, and class. For this conversation, we are joined by Judge Gail Williams Byers of the South Euclid Municipal Court as we continue our discussions about race and racism, In America. Dr. Houston, I want to start off uh, asking you, you know, obviously, if you look at the entertainment industry and you look at the music industry in particular, uh, it's been permeated by racism for hundreds of years. Uh, Since we've started these discussions after the George Floyd killing, are you seeing any shift at all in, in entertainment against systemic racism or to address systemic racism?
1: You know, I'm seeing a couple things. I think that there are shifts in terms of how people talk about it. And it's seemed to have opened the door so that there can be conversations, whereas previously that may not have been best for a public discourse. But I think because it's so present in our social space that we've seen more and more conversations and at least a willingness to have these moments where we're actually discussing, Okay, here is some instances where this has happened and let's try to address this. But I think it's going to take some time to see if this really results in material changes. So I'm. Kind of in the let's let's see what happens mode when it comes to the entertainment industry because it morphs so quickly. Um, So I remember a few years ago we were talking about the lack of women in lead roles, and it just seemed like there was going to be this huge sea change. And for a year and a half, there were all these conversations about more women, more women. And then you know in the recent Oscars, things kind of went right back to what they were before. So you know I'm kind of interested to see what are the long-term implications of this conversation.
0: And the the business aspect of, of entertainment, um, it also has had a history of, of racism. Do you see a change in that aspect?
1: In some ways, I think when you have, I mean, it's a multi-layered conversation, right? Because I think if you look at the work that Tyler Perry is doing and has done He's in a situation that not many Black people are in. Uh, the only other person I think that comes close was Tim Reed uh, when he owned his own production studio in Virginia. Uh, but the ability to green light a project and go from conception to completion, that's huge. But I think if we extend that conversation and start to talk about, you know, well, what are the implications of representation, uh, it's not as clear cut that things are, are indeed changing. So I think you know you can have an artist who recognizes that if I do complicated representations of black life, I can make maybe a million dollars. But if I kind of stick to what people are familiar with, I can make 10 times as much. So I think that part of the conversation is important in addition to people who can green light projects and employ other people, right? Because that's a big part of things changing uh, when someone is in a position to employ those who are marginalized in the entertainment industry.
0: The the black ownership of, of various uh, record labels and hip hop studios and so forth, is, is that a model that other aspects of entertainment can look to, uh, to aspire to?
1: In some ways. I think we have to be clear that there's a difference between owning a label and owning a company because many corporate companies can give you the space to own your label, but they're still in charge at the end of the day. So I think if we were going to model some things, it may be um, Rapid Lot Records, which was founded in uh, Houston, or even what Master P did with No Limit Records, even though in some of those instances, they were smaller arms of a larger conglomerate, they were able to figure out ways to be in sole ownership of their companies. And then they have a greater command of their catalog and then a greater command of what the company does in the future. So I think if we looked at Master P for instance, here's a guy who started out selling records and tapes. We don't even use tapes anymore, out of his right. car. And here's someone who's on the Fortune 500 list and is teaching other people business techniques. Um, so the same thing can be said for what happened with Rapid Lot Records. Um, here's somebody, who had the savviness to say, "Okay, I'm not a rapper, but I know people who are good at this, but I can back them and put them in position to be successful and then create a model for how this lesser known musical culture can flourish in the South. And then 10 to 15 years later, um, this is now the template for how young startups can make an impact.
2: And Dr. Houston, would you agree that we saw the converse of this with even some of our um, most formidable stars, such as Prince, who actually went as far as to change his name in order to get from under the um, ominous um, hoof, if you will, of a record label because of how he was treated. And that had in large part to do with lack of ownership.
1: Absolutely. And I thought Prince was genius. Well, I think he's genius anyway, but to be able to say, I'm not going to release music under Prince, but I'll come out under the symbol and do my thing. And then when my contractual obligation is over, I'll go back to being me. So I thought it was interesting that in that moment, people were thinking, man, this guy's crazy. What's he doing now? But actually it was a genius move. And one of the ways, as you're pointing out, he was able to say, you know, I can circumvent the monster, so to speak, and still do what I want to do. But yeah, that's that's an elusive goal for many artists who are looking to take their cultural production to that next la- level, but are having difficulty dealing with, you know, the corporate execs who kind of control and dictate the nature of that relationship.
2: And if you think of it from a genius standpoint, now, indeed I'd agree. Prince was an absolute genius, and in fact, he still has, you know, trunks and, and scores of music that has even yet to be released. And so, you know, even modern day, we could stand to benefit from his musical genius, even for generations to come. But you know, if we think of it from the racial aspect, there were so many musical geniuses that came from plantations and from sharecropping. And because of their lack of education, were easily taken advantage of by this industry that had already been lucrative. And what they, you know, what they had them do under these contracts were just unconscionable and would have them touring for, you know, maybe all but one week out of the year only to make a penance almost enslaved to their talents.
1: Absolutely, um, I'm thinking of Mamie Smith as you talked about it. Uh, she sold and recorded the song, I think it was "Crazy Blues," and was not being paid. Uh, Bessie Smith, uh, another artist, not being paid royalties by Columbia Records, and these are people who earned those labels tens of thousands of dollars, and they received you know pennies, if anything at all. And I think it was uh, Bill Bronzy uh, from the early '20s who. Was part of the whole race records phenomenon. And, you know, he, in an interview in the 40s, he said, you know, I didn't know that I needed to ask about this. So you had a number of people coming in and just taking advantage of these artists and making, you know, huge sums of money. And these artists, you know, end up dying and living penniless while these corporations, early versions of them, are, you know, essentially building their empires on the backs of their intellectual labor, and they're, they're getting nothing, as you point out.
0: If I could ask a, a question related to that, to, to, to film, um, I, I did not know this, and it's probably my own ignorance, but back in the silent films, there was a whole genre of black films, black silent films, Produced by black uh, directors and and producers with with black actors, and and there have been some bits of independence along the way. What happened to those things? Did they just get gobbled up by the the white corporations, or did? Do you know much about that?
1: Yeah, actually, um, the early black filmmakers. There were a number of them. Uh, probably the most known is Oscar Micheaux. And one of the challenges with the genre is that when talkies came about, films with sound, a lot of them were unable to make that jump to incorporate sound, because film is is an expensive process. Uh, So for people who are operating outside of the industry, so to speak, um, it's even more challenging. Uh, So for instance, Pearl Bowser, who does a lot of archive work on Oscar show and the early Black Silent Films, talks about just the struggle they had in financing their films and then finding distribution for their films. Uh, so, you know, and on top of that, you're competing with the quality of Hollywood films at that time. So while people enjoy the opportunity to go see all Black films, uh, how could you compete with all Black films with well-known actors and actresses that's you know done better technically, and the sound quality is better. So you know those were some significant challenges, and Oscar Michaud was one of the few who was able to emerge from the silent film era to films with sound. Uh, so uh, yeah, it, it wasn't solely black corporations, but you know the fact that unions were segregated, uh, much like um, ASCAP for musicians, which is the American Society of Composers. Uh, you know, These are spaces that were white-only sp- white spaces. So in order to gain a foothold in some of these industries, you had to be part of unions. And there was no space for black people in those spaces.
0: There was also a genre uh, back in, in the 20s and 30s uh, of vitaphone, right? Where there were a lot of jazz performers were, were done in short films.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. There were uh, vaudeville performers, African-American performers. I think uh, Burt Williams is one of the ones who comes to mind. Uh, But he was someone who, despite being classically trained as an actor, uh, made his bread and butter as a blackface performer. So uh, it's interesting that many of the African-American blackface performers would take on Irish surnames because some of the more popular actors were in fact Irish. So you have black men pretending to be white men pretending to be black men in order to be successful. Uh, so it, it's an interesting period, uh, but it shows you kind of the challenges African-Americans face when trying to enter into the entertainment industry as actors and you know, as musicians as well.
0: And just a quick follow up that to that uh, in in radio, uh, we all know that in the golden age of radio, Amos and Andy was done by white men and there were a lot of alleged black characters that were done by white people uh, in what they considered black dialect, which if you listen to it now is so racist that it just makes your uh, hair crawl right. Yeah
1: right? Yeah, absolutely. That that was uh, one of the most, if not the most popular radio show in its time period. Um, it started off as uh, Sam and Henry, and then they switched networks, and then it became Amos and Andy, and then it was uh, turned into a film, uh, which was done in blackface, and then obviously it turned into the TV series, which was uh, boycotted and protested by the NAACP, which ultimately it went off the air, but you're absolutely right. Um, that was one of the most popular shows. And of course, not unlike today, if something's popular and it makes money, then you have a number of imitators who are looking to make the same kind of financial gain. So uh, Amos and Andy's cultural imprint is is huge. Um, it's sort of like the flavor of love and the real housewives of whatever wrapped in the one for the 1920s. <laughs>
2: Well, it's interesting that you talk about the impact um, that shows like Amos and Andy had as it matriculated from radio to being ultimately boycotted on television um, and through that. And, I, you know, I immediately thought about um, how the, the talents of black actors and actresses have been celebrated and stymied Um Throughout their their lifespan, um, you may be familiar uh, with um, the actress Viola Davis, who's often celebrated for her high level of talent, and even is often compared to some of her white counterparts in acting. And I remember reading an article where she recently lamented this um, celebration and even these accolades because she's often experienced pay disparity, even in light of being compared to her white counterparts, which I I don't see that as merely a fluke or a fact that she lacks a talent, but the only difference between she and a Barbara Streisand or someone else who is equally talented can only be attributed to race. Would you agree, Dr. Houston?
1: You know, I, I find it interesting. Yes, is the short answer. Uh, But I remember a couple years ago, she, Tavis Smiley and uh, Viola Davis, not Viola Davis, uh, her name is escaping me now, uh, but they were co-stars in The Help. But they had this really heated discussion with Tavis Smiley about the implications of the roles that they play. And so the short version is he was saying, you know, why are you successful for playing maids, playing servants? Why can't we get more complex representation. And their position was, you know, we're artists. Wherever the art takes us, that's what we're going to do. And life is messy. We all can't have positive, affirming roles all the time. So it's interesting that in this moment, we're having this conversation about, well, what's the difference between her and other actresses other than race?
2: Octavia Um, Spencer, perhaps.
1: Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. And so I think in that moment, they were looking at it from you know, an artist's Perspective. You know, we we take on the roles and we become these people. We tell their truths, no matter how ugly they may be, in the hope that we can find a kernel of truth that's worth watching. So I understood that, but I kind of was scratching my head saying, well, you know, if we continue to take these roles and they are successful, then what's the argument for doing something different? And so I think in the ways that those roles marginalize really talented people, the pay disparity is also present. Uh, And I think until more artists who are on the side of, you know, the high money makers say, well, wait a minute, this is not fair. This is problematic. We need to level the playing field here, the paying field, excuse me. Um, So I think, you know, it's unfortunate, but it's the reality.
0: how does how does the, the the role and the help that that you and Judge Byers were talking about? How is that different from the Hattie McDaniel role in in Gone with the Wind? Aren't there some similarities?
1: You know, I think that we like to think of ourselves as being more progressive, and that these roles show the interior of these characters in ways that we didn't see in Hattie McDaniel's portrayal in Gone with the Wind. So I think in those ways we can argue that there are some differences, but in, in my view, I'm less interested in the repetitive nature of telling that story than other stories. Um, you know, I think it was Tony K. Mambara who said, introduce me to a world where I don't miss myself. And so I'm often looking for characters who are familiar um, and who reflect the complexity of black life and not just the same tried and true forms of representation. Uh, but I think that when you asked me earlier about what's changed, I think there's a lot of that. Um, these films that seem to be progressive, but really are not, um, and in, in some ways are more problematic. Um, so you know, why not tell the story of the black woman who worked as a domestic, but you know, didn't think that that was the best and greatest thing about her, or who didn't say, you know what? When I die, then things will be just and fair. Why not the story about the woman who made sure that things would be different for her children? Uh, and there are a number of women throughout history who have that story rather than what we've seen consistently on the big screen.
2: And I think I'd go also as far as to say that the roles of maids, housekeepers, um uh, which first of all I think is perhaps the the least revered role and position in in in, in general has by and large um, been been borne by people of color um Although there have been some times when um, non-minorities have played those roles in, in the earliest days I mean if you think about it some some of them were played in blackface you had, Others, um, I think you there is a, a white maid, um, Alice Nunn, um, who played the the maid in um, in Mommy Dearest. Um, you had, you know, I think Helen Mirren may have played a role or two in in a um, in a movie. Uh, you had Charlotte Ray, who you know played a maid on on television. Um, and these are all, again, non-minorities, but by and large, your your most prominent roles of maids, housekeepers, and the like were all, almost always people of color, whether they were Black women or Black men. And so I think it was the level of um, prestige or lack thereof of that position and the fact that it was never... Really considered something that if you weren't going to pay them that much in real life, then why bother paying them that much on the big screen? Which I think is where some of the justification came into place. But I also think that that's also what gave credence, or uh, or um, Dr. Houston, if you if you uh, would agree, if that gives credence to the pre-existing racist um, ideals that perhaps already exist in Hollywood and. To some degree, that may be true, but when you look at other parts of um, entertainment where you can't walk away from how we have compensated some entertainers. For example, most recently, we saw members of the NBA absolutely rise up in protest over Um, what's happened in our criminal justice system as it relates to Blacks and African-Americans injustice with the police by and large. More than 70 percent of NBA players are African-American males who, yes, quite frankly, have the financial wherewithal to say, hey, listen, we've got a voice, we're going to use it. And unlike what, you know, commentators like Laura Ingram had once indicated they should just shut up and dribble. They were not sh- going to shut up and dribble. They exercised their ability to protest and did just that. And so that I think is a far cry from merely pigeonholing them as these lowly paid um maids and butlers to recognizing them as highly paid entertainers that could quite frankly cripple an entertainment industry that Everyone across the spectrum, black, white, purple, green, blue polka dot has come to love. What would what are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, Judge, uh, that, there's a lot to unpack there. So I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll try, try to get to it. You know, I think a couple of things. One, if we accept what film scholar Donald Bogle says uh, in, a, in his work on black representation in Hollywood, he says that even though these images are entertaining, they're also meant to stress Black inferiority. And so one of the things I think about this different is you mentioned uh, the Brady Bunch and Alice was considered to be part of the family. And I think she ends up getting married on the series. So we get to explore the interior of her life. We see some of her desires and we see a little bit about her, not a whole lot, but a little bit about her that's independent of her role as a housekeeper. And I think one of the distinct differences is she was her own person. She was a maid and a housekeeper. Whereas when it comes to Black representation, that's the extent, you are a mammy. So I, I'm thinking of Beulah, for instance, uh, one of the first Black shows on TV after Amos and Andy, and her sole function was to take care of that white family. And so there's no discussion of, you know, well, what are her desires? What's important to her? What time does she get off? Who's, who, who are her friends? Uh, None of that is important. So in many ways, we're being entertained, but we're also being socialized that Black lives are only important as reference points to white lives. Uh, And so one of the classic films, Imitation of Life, always comes to mind because you have two women. It's really a powerful story, right? Two women come together and they're going to support each other. And depending upon which version you've seen, there's, there's one in, I think, the 20s and 30s and there's a later one in in the 50s but what's interesting is it doesn't really explore the interior of the black woman's life at all her sole purpose is to be a caretaker and so we see some differences between what a maid looks like when represented by a white woman and what a mammy looks like when represented by a black woman and so there's a scene at the end is just really powerful uh, and i hate to spoil it if you haven't seen it but she's on her deathbed the black woman and so the white woman's like you know i I, you can't die. I don't want you to die. What are you going to do? We need to make arrangements. And so the black woman says, you know, I have, you know, I've reached out to my church and the line is just so cold. She's like, I didn't even know you had friends. So it's like, you've lived with this woman. You all have struggled together. You've persevered. And she's on her deathbed. And the thing you say to her is, I didn't even know you had friends. Um, So that just blew my mind the first time I saw it. And when I watch it again, I'm like, wow, that's crazy. They could coexist in this house. This woman can take care of your daughter, be there for her emotionally when you're trying to further your career. And then that's that's the level of engagement you have. So I think it it's entertaining in some ways these film representations, but it sort of underscores the differences between what it looks like when we have Mammy in Gone with the Wind or Beulah in the series Beulah or any number of shows where black women have portrayed domestics. Versus um, other folk who've been able to play housekeepers or maids. Um, it's just something really uh, definitive about that line between you are an object of my desire and someone else having at least some a little bit of uh, subjectivity. So, I, you know, to your point, I think that um, that's always been a clear demarcation. And then as we move forward, looking at, you know, the athletes who are standing up. Um, I I thought to myself, well, it's about time. Uh, If you're not going to do it now, you probably never will. Uh, But the industry is is so interesting, the sports industry, because for so long, people have said there's no relationship between sports and politics. Um, But if we think back even to the 30s Olympics with Jesse Owens, that was all about politics. It was about America's notion of justice, righteousness against Hitler's version of, you know, the perfect Aryan race. And so when Jesse Owens wins the race, he doesn't just win a race, he wins a political contest between two uh, varying political rivals. So sports has always had an intimately close relationship with politics, whether it be gender, whether it be race or whether it be what's happening in any given social moment. So You know, I applaud those um, athletes for finding their voice um, and I would encourage them to do more than performatory acts of solidarity, which, you know, to be fair and to give people grace, for some of us, that's how we come into the conversation. And then over time, it may become more real and we see that we need to do more to really push the conversation forward. And something that I've always said and believe is that when the least of us are the most outraged, that's when we begin to see some real shifts in what's happening with world-majority populations and those who are in power um, in this particular country.
0: We'll be back after this message. Spectrum's brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College is one of the most comprehensive colleges of communication in the country. It offers a foundation of creativity and practice so that graduates can move the world forward. In particular, the Scripps College offers challenging coursework that holds students to high expectations, an integrated curriculum that combines a variety of disciplines and ideas, and student-driven media organizations where students can apply these skills and gain experience that enables them to hit the ground running upon graduation. That's the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. I wanted to just add one quick thing and double-check me on this, Dr. Houston, but the, the TV version of Beulah uh, was portrayed by a black woman, but the original character was in the 1940s on Fibber McGee and Molly, was also a domestic on radio, and that character was performed by a white male speaking in alleged dialect of a black woman maid.
1: You're correct. Um, I think the, if I recall correctly, the character on TV was played by two different women on um, the television version. And then a number of characters were voiced by black men, or excuse me, not black men, white men. Uh, so they called it um, radio blackface. Uh, and yeah. of course, as we pointed out, Amos and Andy, that's how they started. Um,
0: That was the ultimate. I wanted to talk about the the whole concept of of blackness in in entertainment, and and, and I'm going to phrase this awkwardly, and I apologize ahead of time, but if you look back at film and you look at people like Dorothy Dandridge or you look at uh, Lena Horne or Diane Carroll, um, all of them looked white. In, in many respects, audiences would allow that, but they would not allow blackness, would they? It, you know,
1: it's a certain kind of blackness. You know, in many ways, it reminds me of contemporary rap music. There's only certain forms of black identity representation that are going to be allowed to flow through corporate spaces. So you can get the people who don't really challenge stereotypes or assumptions about Black people. And then when it comes to film, uh, in those particular days, you know, people who are fairer in complexion, that was the way to go. So Dorothy Dandridge or, you know, some of the Lena Horne, for instance, you know, you could certainly have a better career if you were fairer in complexion. And maybe the roles you get were a slightly bit more diverse than if you were darker in complexion. But uh, I watched, um, it's interesting as a PBS documentary, it's kind of dated now, came out around the early 2000s and it was taking the idea of Du Bois' question or statement rather, um, that the problem of the 20th century is the color line. And so what they did in this series, I think it was Skip Gates, who was um, one of the people working on this, uh, but what was really interesting was the commentary from the actors and actresses. And so they spoke with me along and she talked about that still being an issue. That, you know, the notion of beauty is still tied to, you know, this white basis of this is the standard. And so if you are a black woman, you know, the closer you are to approximate that idea of beauty, the better your career is. Um and so she wondered, you know, if it was because of her complexion, that she was paid less or not considered to be love interest in other films. Um, so where I do think there has been some shifts is we're starting to see people like Ryan Coogler, for instance, um, who are making films that challenge that you know notion of beauty. And then of course you can't forget Ava DuVernay um, who's also challenging the right. idea of beauty. And so I think because of that, you're starting to see the complexity and range of beauty that exists uh, in talent, and then this idea of blackness. And then if we go semi old school to the Cosby show, uh, one of the things that Alvin Poussant, um, Dr. Alvin Poussant talked about was how they had an episode of the Cosby show where he, Cosby, Bill Cosby told the casting director that we need dates for Theo, make sure they're pretty. And so the casting director went out and all of the women that were selected were fair and complexion, and, and had long hair. And so Dr. Poussant, who was an advisor said, no, we need to have a range of women. Beauty isn't just this box, it's this range. And so his argument was our ideas, our conceptions are so much tied to the white aesthetic being the standard um, that we, we don't even think about it. And he said he didn't think, and I'm paraphrasing, he didn't think that the casting director was some horrible person it's just in their mind, they said, oh, pretty. This is what pretty looks like. And it negated uh, Black women who were dark in complexion, who were tall, who were short, who had locks, who had short froes or long froze. Um, So it was really telling just how much those kinds of ideas influence the way we think about difference and then how that difference plays into representation.
0: I wanted to ask uh, about the explosion of new media that we have with Netflix and Hulu and Amazon Prime and all of these producing series and long form and short form uh, television and streaming. What impact has that had on opportunities for two things? One Black artists and two of telling a realistic black story.
1: Good question. I think that it's, it's been wonderful uh, because it's created more space. So, no longer are you limited to the festivals, you know, trying to get your film picked up by a major distributor or hoping that you know, maybe somebody with deep pocket sees it and wants to invest in it. Now you have other opportunities. And in some cases, you can pitch your show. Um, So I'm thinking of Killer Mike has a show, which, you know, he's based in Atlanta. He's a rapper. And so he pitched his show to Netflix. Um, So he gave him access to being able to have his voice put out there. Uh, So I think, wow, this is amazing. Um, And so you're getting people who aren't necessarily trained filmmakers, but who have ideas and who want to share. So I think it's opened up the space for a number of Black artists. And I should say we're in a moment where everybody has the opportunity to be mediocre. Uh, so I always say <laughs> that to my students because I don't necessarily think that just because you're a Black filmmaker, your film is going to be aesthetically superior, is going to be extremely nuanced and present the best version of you know Black life. Um, Everybody has an opportunity. And some of those are, are wonderful. Some of them, not so much. But I think it creates space for more complexity of, you know, storytelling. And we get to see some differences. But I think the challenge still comes back to who are the gatekeepers who get to decide what sees the light of day in terms of it being a film. And then for some filmmakers, you know, are you telling stories that reflect what your vision is? Are you telling stories that you think will be picked up? Um, So it's in some ways mirrors the music industry in that a lot of rappers, for instance, they know, okay, well, if I'm going to top the charts and become a major selling artist, these are the subjects I should probably traffic in. Uh, However, if I were to do something a little bit different, I may not do so well. Um, So I think those are some of the same things that artists uh, who are making films have to confront as well. Um, But I think because there's more space, because there's more access, um, even YouTube created content. Um, I think Issa Rae is probably the the best example because uh, the Adventures of the Awkward Black Woman started off as a YouTube series when she was told no by other entities because it wasn't a diverse enough cast, meaning there were no lead white people. And so what she did was say, OK, her and the filmmaker she was working with, and they continued to make it the way they envisioned it. And eventually HBO picked it up. And now Insecure is one of the hottest shows on that channel. So I think creating that space and sort of sticking to your creative ideas about what you want to do, um, those have definitely opened it up. Um, and, you know, there, there are things that I've seen. Uh, for instance, I watched a film called The Weeknd. And Kim Whitley plays a role in it. She plays um the lead protagonist's mother, and I've never seen her in that role. And I was just really surprised. It's like you know, I believe that this is a talented person, and I'm just waiting to see her in something that takes her out of the loop of you know just being um, the comedian, which is you know it's funny, but it's you know it, it's one of those things where you only see that person in that role. And so I thought this film gave her the opportunity to really show her range as an actress. And I was like, wow, this is incredible. And so I'm always excited by the possibility of seeing people do different things and having access to show that there's more to me than what you may have seen in the past. And I think those new filmmakers who have the space on your Hulu's, your Netflix, and the like, um, have the space to tell more complex stories.
0: In this regard, Judge, uh, you've said before that when you were growing up, there was nobody in entertainment that looked like you or were telling your story. Was that the same raising your son?
2: Um, I think more so then than it is now. I mean, my son being 20, well, just turning 21, I think he's had the benefit of seeing himself reflected more than what I would say myself or my siblings or my husband and certainly my parents have had. And and not necessarily by much, but there's certainly been some gravitation toward at least an effort. For more black representation. But I also will say, back to a point Dr. Houston made, because my husband is a biracial man, my son um, has a complexion closer to my husband's, it's entirely possible that, you know, he, you know, were he in this industry, he would be considered a, a, a black man that could pass for white. And so, you know, it would it would be perhaps that his opportunities would be different from even other black men that are similarly um, situated in his age group or from his same socioeconomic background or the like. And the only difference would be his skin color, um, which would unlevel the playing field in favor of him, but against others who, who have equal talent and an equal right, quite frankly, to be considered. And I don't know that, the, no, I do know that that does not make for a better, better system of entertainment, of, of access to entertainment, of experiencing the full breadth of, of entertainment talent that exists in the black talent pool or even in other minority talent pools, uh, how often are we really seeing other ethnic groups truly diversely represented? Uh, you know, if, if as Blacks, we are certainly you know, ringing the bell and calling attention to this. The the hashtag Oscar so white really does not only speak to how much Black representation is missing, but across the board, how much asian representation is missing how much hispanic representation is missing how much native american representation is just absolutely devoid and these are all issues that deserve to be spoken to because without all of this talent coming to bear in the entertainment industry imagine you know how much how many dollars would be lost this industry, if all of those who just never saw themselves represented said, I'm just not gonna, I'm not gonna participate, or I'm not gonna buy in, or I'm not gonna buy that Netflix membership. I don't care if it is four dollars or five dollars or I'm not paying for Hulu, Hulu, or Spotify, or whatever. Why? Because I don't see anyone that looks like me. That's an actual possibility. And I would think that the entertainment industry would wise up in every facet to the need to have full, vast representation across the board. But I think Dr. Houston said it best that until we have seats at the highest tables, then the perceptions that exist at the lowest levels will always permeate there.
0: Dr. Houston, you can jump in on that.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. I think the challenge is you know, getting there, but I, I also, like what filmmakers like Holly Dreamer says. You know, if you want freedom films, then you kind of have to leave the plantation. And in his view, Hollywood is the plantation. So I think Hollywood is, is often been successful by borrowing things from the independent film sector. And so I think those filmmakers who are choosing to remain independent of Hollywood, you know, creatively, they have a lot more latitude and sometimes that will bring Hollywood to the table. If you can kind of say, hey, you know what? We don't necessarily have to do it this way. There are other ways to get our film distributed. Uh, so for instance, going back to his film, Sankofa, that was a film that was you know 20 years in the making because it didn't have any well-known actors and actresses. It didn't have a leading white co-star. And by a lot of producers view, it just wasn't going to sell. And it told an unflinching story about enslavement. And so it wasn't, you know, like Roots, which has somewhat of a happy ending. It wasn't like other films that had dealt with that subject area. And in many ways, it it could have had the cultural impact that 12 years of, of, of slave, 12 years of slave had. Uh, but it just was not supported in that way. However, what they were able to do is he and other filmmakers they went to different theaters across the country. They hosted conversations about the film and generated this interest. Uh, So I think if people are willing to do that and sort of say, you know, there's more than one way to get my film out there, I think that also helps to get people at the table. Uh, And so I think now it's even easier because we're talking about a film that came out in the nineties and there was no internet the way it is. There wasn't social media. And they were still able to get the film seen, get on the radio and and have people have these conversations. And so I think in some ways he took a page out of, you know, Melvin Van Peeble's book with Sweet Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song back in the 70s. Uh, That was a film that was not advertised. And he essentially went to black radio and talked about his film and talked up his film. And it was a film that received an X rating because he refused to have his film reviewed. But despite all of that, it became the number one selling independent film in its day. And so I think, you know, by hook or crook, filmmakers have to be willing to say, you know what? I don't necessarily need the endorsement of the big labels, the big corporations. I can do this and have my stuff out there. Um, So I think just being creative, and taking risks um, are ways that we can, you know, to loosely parap- paraphrase Solange, have a seat at the table. Uh, and sometimes we have to go and make our own table. Um, and then in that way, people will come and say, wow, this is amazing. Um, what do we need to do to be a part of this? Um, so I think there are a number of examples we could point to where cultural producers generally have taken risks and then people have come to them and said, okay, what, what can we do? To be a part of what you're doing here, we see that it's successful. So, how can we be a part of this? Uh, So, you know, there are a number of examples. I'm thinking musically of the Wu Tang Clan. Um, Here's a group that started from nothing and was able to amass such a huge following for them as a collective and then as individuals. And they were selling, again, records and tapes uh, out of trunks of their cars, you know, walking down the street and had already sold over a million units before they were on the radio. And so the corporations are scratching their heads saying, how is this possible that they've had no major marketing push from any branding outlet, but they're on everybody's lips everywhere you go? Um, Similarly to the story of NWA out on the West Coast. So, you know, there are ways um, that people can find some success and have some differences of representation uh, rather than solely relying on the powers that be, so to speak.
0: One last area I wanted to ask you about, and that is, I I know you teach and I know you teach young people. uh, Talk about generational differences. Are the students that you're teaching, do they have a different view of race and media than you had or certainly that I had been uh, having parents from World War II and the Depression. Uh, You know, talk about generational differences.
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Their world is so different. Uh, And the things that are important to me, uh, I don't know that all of my students are thinking about it, you know, just in terms of nuance and representation, uh, not just to have different people there, but different perspectives represented. So, you know, I'm talking about students who in their lifetime, hip hop has always been commercial. So I remember when I was coming up, you know, it was illegal to be a B-boy in a shopping mall or to break dance at a shopping mall. That was illegal. You couldn't do that. Uh, A lot of the rap music was not played on the radio. It was played if it was late at night or during some mix show on the weekend. So you had to wait and it was only on certain stations. So I think for them, like you have rapper actors. Will Smith is better known as an actor than he is a rapper. Ice Cube, better known as an actor than he is a rapper. So their world is is a lot different. And I think the challenge is because issues of race may not be so much in your face that when moments like the one we're living in happen, it really catches you off guard because you haven't necessarily been primed by popular culture to be prepared. So what I mean by that is, uh, I listen to music by main source. I listen to music by Public Enemy, music by Queen Latifah, the Lauryn Hill, et cetera. And so in those offerings, they talked about what was happening in the world. They talked about police brutality. They talked about their experiences growing up in their neighborhoods. So it kind of primed you to think about these things but because a lot of the popular content uh, doesn't really address that, you know, you're not necessarily thinking about it in the ways that maybe young people did before. Uh, I can remember when Rodney King um, was beaten and you know, there were protests all around the world in reaction to the acquittal of the poor officers. So I remember that, and I remember the conversations that uh, rappers were having in their music and you know, just in discussion. And so it sort of primed us for what was happening. Whereas now, when things happen, it's sort of like, wow, I can't believe, wow, this is happening. It's 2020. This should have ended a long time ago. Um, and there are some exceptions, right? We can think of rappers like Rhapsody, Kendrick Lamar, or even, you know, J. Cole as some folks who are having these kinds of conversations. But by and large, a lot of the music is kind of devoid of this. Um, so, I think for them, uh, it's it's different. But I, in fairness to my students, there are a number of them who think about these ideas and think deeply about them. Uh, so, for instance, uh, there's you know Blackish and Grownish. Um, so there are students who watch that and get something out of it, but then they can also offer critical reflections. Um, so they're just not a hundred percent consuming. They're also critically thinking. But it is a different world and. It's, it's a different experience. Uh, so for them, you know, they have had in their lifetime as they're growing up, they've seen a black president in the United States. They've seen women run for office. Um, they, they've they seen it. Um, so it's not, well, one day this could happen. They've seen it. And so I think for them, the world of possibility is a lot, t- lot more tangible than maybe um, from some of the things that I experienced coming up. Uh, and certainly in talking with uh, folks who are my grandparents' age, uh, it's it's just awe-inspiring for them uh, because, you know, before my grandfather passed, that's one of the things he talked about when uh, Obama won his first term in office. He said, you know, I don't even know what to say because I didn't think I'd live to see this happen. So independent of getting into policy analysis, he was just surprised, but also grateful that he could live to say, I saw this happen. Uh, So I think the good thing about this moment for a lot of students is that they're not caught up in what I like to call the Jackie Robinson moment. You know, we're happy that you're here. We're happy that you're representing. They're more interested in, okay, now that you're here, what are you going to do? And how will your politics and your actions positively impact the material conditions of my community? So I think that is a is a plus uh, when I think
0: about my students. Judge Gale, I'm gonna give you last word.
2: And so as we um, look to wrap up today, um, I just wondered, uh, Dr. Houston, I know that uh, we just lost a wonderful, well, a couple wonderful icons this year um, from Kobe Bryant to Chadwick Boseman, who I think, made us both of whom made us all proud in their respective realms. And Chadwick Bozeman, in particular, um, was famous for quoting the artist Nina Simone to be young, gifted, and black. Um, how how would you now um, revisit that quote in light of what has transpired in? modern day America? And how would you reflect upon that given how we've seen Hollywood and the entertainment industry respond to the young, gifted, and Black talent?
1: Mm, Thank you for that uh, question. You know, I, I couldn't think of a better person to echo Lorraine Hansberry's words and Nina Simone's song. Uh, than with Bozeman. I think he embodied the best of the tradition of being not just an actor, but a spokesperson. Uh, and, and I'm not saying that as a black actor, you should or have to, uh, particularly when other people don't feel the need to, but I think he took up that responsibility and I was always impressed and honored by how he chose roles. And that it was a consideration. And I thought he was deserving of the title of the next Denzel, um, who somebody I think for the majority of his career has always had a certain dignity and grace with whatever character he had. Uh, So I think um, losing him, uh, it's tough because he had a relatively short career. But, you know, he he did much with his life. And I saw someone saying that, you know, in his short time, he's done more than some people do their whole lives. Uh, so it's not lost on me um, what he brought to the table, how he embraced Black identity, Black culture, brought conversations of Pan-Africanism and Afrofuturism to the forefront through his portrayal of King T'Challa and Black Panther. And, you know, these are conversations that mainstream United States wasn't having, but I think he brought that to the table and his insistence to have Actual African dialects in the film is so huge. Uh, It may seem very small, but I thought, you know, listening to him in interviews talk about, you know, I think this character, um, if he is the king of this African nation and he's as proud as he is supposed to be, he he should speak his own language. And and that was so huge. Um, We've never seen a film of that magnitude like that really deal with some of the complexities of the Black experience. So I will. Forever be grateful to he and the rest of the filmmakers, uh, and you mentioned a number of other people who we've lost. Uh, John Thompson, uh, who was the coach of Georgetown basketball uh, during their heydays in the eighties and early nineties, um, just just a huge presence in the lives of you know his players, and it was more important to him that his players graduated or became better men than better basketball players. Uh, and so I, I just think about. You know, some of the players that I have grown to appreciate, you know, Patrick Ewing, the Dikembe Matumbo, Allen Iverson, uh, and a number of other players that were under his tutelage, um, just how he gave them the tools to be better human beings, better men, and obviously better basketball players. But I think, you know, just to see how his players appreciated him and to listen to Allen Iverson, for example, talk about. How John Thompson wasn't his coach; he was like his dad. Um, that that means a lot, and you know, I, I think that we're at a moment where we really have to be grateful and gracious and give people grace uh, because these are these are difficult times. But I think models um, that we've seen um, in the recent passing of some of these icons is, is huge, and I, and I think it's awesome that Kobe Bryant is being celebrated. I think one of the challenges during his playing days is his personality represented such a different take on Black masculinity. Here's a young man who spoke several different languages. Here's a young man who preferred to work on his craft than to just hang out and be one of the guys. And I thought during his playing days, he was, you know, demonized for a lot of that. so it's nice to see that he's being remembered for this really complex thinker, this person who had an unmatched drive uh, to be the best. And so we're beginning to see, you know, there are other ways of expressing who you are. Black masculinity doesn't have to be in this box. You can speak multiple languages, you can be intelligent, you can be well read, and still dominate the basketball court. So I'm grateful uh, that I had the opportunity to see him, to hear him. And, you know, you know, spend some time, not personally, but to spend some time absorbing what he brought to the table. Um, and so it's, it's unfortunate that these people have passed, but I hope that, you know, we can collectively learn something from, you know, their experience and hopefully live up to uh, folks like the great playwright right uh, Lorraine Hansberry and their commitment to humanity.
0: Dr. Houston, as always, a great pleasure to talk with you. Uh, I always learn so much uh, talking with you and and fascinating topic. Thank you for your time and your expertise. Thank you. And thank you, uh, Judge Byers. I appreciate it.
2: Oh, indeed. Dr. Houston, this has been a wonderfully insightful discussion and conversation with you. And I am so encouraged that all who listen, and listen intently will gain as much from this experience as we have today and i am so grateful that you have lent us the value and benefit of your time and wisdom to this very important topic especially at a time like now thank you
0: thank you today we've been talking with dr akil houston about race and racism in entertainment and in the music industry Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available through the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback. So. Please rate our podcast or review it through one of your favorite podcast outlets. If you have any questions or comments about our podcast or have suggested topics for us to cover in the future, please direct them to me by email at That's Hudson, hodson at ohio.edu. That's Hodson, H O D S O N, at ohio.edu.